0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Sina Larson, author of The Constitutional Theory, The Federation and the European Union, published in February 2021 by Oxford University Press. At the core of this book is one big and original idea. Quote, The autarkic European nation-state, if it ever existed, was the exception rather than the rule. Nevertheless, it is the myth of the self-sufficient nation-state that lies at the heart of much scholarship on post-World War II European integration. Instead of interpreting the EU in line with previous projects of market creation through Empire and Federation, the story of the post-World War II project of European integration is often interpreted as a conflict or competition between the Union and the member states as the dominant forces in a zero-sum game, end quote. As I said, it's a big idea, and in current times it's a politically fraught one. But as she is at pains to point out in the introduction, Dr Larson's intention is not to take sides in Europe's culture war. She is simply removing the nation-state as a template for understanding the EU and instead comparing it to its natural and often forgotten peers, like the pre-Civil War United States and Germany's 19th century confederations. Sina Railing Larson is a Fellow by Examination at Magdalen College, Oxford, and was previously a Max Weber Fellow in Law at the European University Institute in Florence. She was educated at the the London School of Economics, the New School for Social Research, Bard College Berlin, and the University of Copenhagen. Sina, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for for having me.
0: Um, In your preamble, you say that a friend persuaded you to expand on your doctoral thesis to, to appeal to readers beyond legal scholarship. And I can see why, because this book was, was a revelation to this non-lawyer anyway. Um, and I'm going to throw a couple more quotes from your book at you. You yeah. say that the categories of the state have blinded us to federalism, and we have forgotten the federation as a political form, and I'm guilty as charged. So can you start by outlining the broad argument of the book, and then we can explore some of the detail?
1: Okay, sure. Yeah, there are, there are many ways of doing this, so so I have to pick one, I guess. Yeah. Um. So yeah, So the book is about the EU, of course, and what it is, which I guess is a question that has been raised, especially in the UK in, in light of Brexit, where a lot of people have have shown a, a greater interest in, in what the EU actually is and what it means to be a member state of the Union. And my argument basically is that, that the EU is uh, a genuine federation, but that this has not really been properly understood because the federation tend to be understood based on the categories of the state. Hmm. So that means that the federation is either seen as a a sovereign state, like a federal state, that is sort of um, just a more decentralized version of a unitary state. Alternatively, it's it's seen as a union of fully sovereign states that have full control politically over everything sort of the union does. And my point is basically that, from a historical perspective, that's that's not a very good um, theory. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, sort of provide a, an accurate account of actually how federations worked.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I propose that we uh, sort of bracket the state and the questions of sovereignty for the most part, and think of the federation as a discrete form of political association that has to sort of. Um, that, that, that should be thought of on par with the state, but also with the empire um, as sort of like the three great forms of political association of political modernity. Um, and like another reason why I don't think this is properly understood is that, that federalism is alternatively like a third sort of interpretation of federalism is that it's seen as sort of a form of government. So you think of a form of government could be parliamentarism or presidentialism, or it could be federalism. So there's this is idea that it's sort of like some some way like a state could govern itself. But but I want to sort of depart from that way of thinking of the federation.
0: Yes, and you, you make this very good. I mean, some of these things may may seem obvious to 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 other people, but they didn't to me. I mean, you you make this point that the U.S. So we we think of the founding of the U.S. or I think of the founding of the U.S. as as the creation of a nation, whereas you you point out that really until the Civil War and the 14th amendment it it, it was as, as they actually say in in, in the founding documents a federal union of states yeah. uh, the people organized the states, uh, as states not as you say not uh, th- they were not organized in a nation known as the United States and even yeah. when they came up with the idea of ratifying the uh, the founding documents uh by nine member states to make it work at 9 out of 13 they said it would if that if that happened it would only apply to the nine so there wasn't there wasn't coercion which yeah. is a, a, another point you 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 make
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think like the united states we we um because it's such a centralizing force today and, and there's so much power at the center in in the us we tend to think that this has always been the case um but really it's taken almost 200 years for the US to become what it is today. Uh, mm. For the first at least 100 years, or more, um, most of the powers really resided with the states of the Union. And just think of it, like if it was founded as a state, why would you choose that name, right? The United States yes. of America is the worst name in the world. for states. <laughs> um, Yeah. So, but I think like the American history is is, is um is often uh often forgotten or, or, or even repressed because um, it's um, it's it's a diff- I mean, it's associated with a lot of like uh, unfortunate things in American history. Like I, I write about the theory of state rights, um, mm. in this in the last part of the book, which of course is associated with slavery and the question of slavery. Um, but just because that um this argument. Is associated with morally really problematic issues. It doesn't mean that it, it couldn't be a, a correct constitutional interpretation, even if we might not not like it. And my point is basically like the the argument of states' rights is is, is also what is uh, reappearing um in Europe now. Yes. Um, for example, with the contestation of EU authority by by the German Constitutional Court in, in the Eurozone crisis, like the, you 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 can see like a complete repetition of the, of the same arguments really. Um, in terms of who has the right to defend the constitution what constitution should prevail and and, and all that
0: yeah you also explain what a constitution is that it's not a, a framework of laws it's it's a it's a sort of a statement of the identity of of a state or a federation could could you expand on that point
1: yeah i think actually for for people in the uk this is relatively easy to relate to so so um the basic point is that a constitution cannot be the re- reduced to the sum of constitutional laws. So, so say in the, in the UK, there's no document called the Constitution of the United Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But that doesn't mean that there's no constitution. So the constitution is um, the fundamental legal political rules through which a uh, political community govern themselves. And that will tend to be uh, written down somehow, for the most part, but, but it will sometimes also be expressed via sort of conventions, ways of doing things, as it is in, in, in the UK. So this is also why, like, the way I, or sort of the fundamental way why I say, like, the EU as a constitution, it is in this sense, because, of course, there's no document called the Constitution of the European Union, but that does not mean that it doesn't have a, a constitution. Mm
0: yeah uh, I, I, and you, you 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 I mean you've expanded on this with uh, two papers that you've written since the book came out one um on the european union as a militant democracy and varia- v- varieties of constitutionalism in the european yeah. union you differentiate how that constitu- or or the i think you you, you make at one point you make the point at one point that the european union is unique in the different times of types of constitutional settlements it has within it yeah. and you identify these three different or two main types of constitutionalism um and and how important those have become on the one side with with brexit and element you know areas of euroscepticism in scandinavia yeah. and then more obviously now with the standoff with hungary and poland
1: yeah
0: could you could you expand on that please
1: yeah so i guess like the starting point is to say, so within European studies and, and EU law, there's this idea that the EU is unique or so generous, exactly because it doesn't fit the mold of the state, that it's not like a confederation of federal states. So therefore, it must be something completely unprecedented, which I, of course, disagree with. But my point in these papers is that there might be a very unique constitutional aspect of the European Union, which is um, that the member states have very different understandings of what a constitution is and does. And in my view, this has to do with the fact that the member states of the European Union have drawn quite different conclusions or lessons based on the history of the 20th century. And for that reason, they have uh, constituted themselves in different ways. So within the literature, the main story is that that most of the, the member states after the war um, adopted this kind of what I call post-fascist constitutionalism, but we might also call it anti-totalitarian constitutionalism which is this view that um sort of the, the the foundation of of the constitution is this fundamental fear of the people that the people cannot be trusted and therefore um in order for democracy sort of to prevail you you need very strong um counter-majoritarian institutions to protect the fundamental values of society sort of what they see as democratic values so so the great example of this or like the the most um a clear example of this is is a german basic law but i would also say the european union is an expression of this way of thinking about what a what a constitution is but of course that um that story does not apply to to the uk or to the scandinavian member states and my my view is that this has to do with the fact that during the war they didn't suffer a complete legal and political breakdown mm. so they have this uh like the story they tell about themselves is that there have always been democracies, uh, democracy is a benign power, civil society is a benign power, and um, really nothing can stand above or besides the will of parliament. Um, so that means that they relate to the EU in a very different way, because um, a fundamental fundamental aspect of EU law is, is uh, firstly supremacy of EU law, which is difficult to reconcile with parliamentary sovereignty, but also things like judicial review, that um, that parliamentary laws can only be laws if they uh, do not infringe a written constitution. Um, the last type I look at is what I call post-communist constitutionalism, which I think, so, so, so the post-communist states are, are often, I think, um, described as a form of uh, militant democracy or constrained democracy or what I called um, post-fascist constitutionalism, uh, but I think that's 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 not correct because, um, in contrast to to what I call the post-fascist states, the post-communist states uh, do not understand sort of what we often call totalitarianism or like the, the regimes of the Cold War. They do not see this as something uh, that was caused by an internal collapse, but they see that as something imposed upon them from the outside by an imperial mm-hmm. power. So their view is that by becoming part of the EU, they could finally become sovereign nation states where all control lay with the nation as a sovereign power, as sort of the highest source of authority. So they have this story, they tell like the return to Europe, they call it, which is basically that by becoming member states in the EU, they could go back in time before they were invaded by the communists and sort of recreate those regimes. Historically, of course, that's that's quite fictitious because most of these regimes were authoritarian regimes at that point in time. But it, it sort of it's a it's a really powerful story of national memory. Mm. Um, but the the problem or like the the thing is that that, that does create a conflict internally with, with EU law because of course um, the idea of national sovereignty as sort of the uh, supreme uh, source of authority sits quite uneasily with the idea of supremacy of EU law as well. Um, so, so my point is basically there are all these like constitutional conflicts within the EU because um, the constitutional theories of sort of the union level and the member states are, are sometimes uh, quite con- conflictual. And I think this is uh, part of the reasons or like part of the framework in which we should try to understand Brexit as, as, as well.
0: Yeah. yeah, And, and, and related to the, the Eastern European issues... Um, you make this very interesting point about the Copenhagen criteria that yeah. um, well I mean coming back slightly you 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 can trust um, federations that are created to ensure collective defense with federations that were created more for general welfare or for economic reasons and I think yeah. most of us have have assumed probably that the European Union was the latter but as you, you make the point that the Copenhagen criteria actually forced the European Union um, to to basically come up with a, a constitutional identity, you know what the essential character traits it wanted to see in a member state, and uh, uh, and as a result, you know they they have developed that that identity, and Viktor Orbán and uh, uh, and the Polish government are to some extent um, violating that identity.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think like for, um, for federations in general, sort of a really important point, which is, is often not discussed very much uh, because it might make, make people feel uncomfortable, perhaps, I don't know. But it's this idea that in order for the union to be stable, you need some kind of homogeneity. Um, so so basically, for the union to be stable, the member states cannot differ fundamentally on, on sort of politically. Um, And there's a simple legal reason to this, uh, for this, which is that there's no clear hierarchy in a federation. So if there's a conflict, it's not really clear how you resolve it in terms of there's there's no highest court. I mean, so the member states will always resist that ultimately they are the masters of the treaties. And uh, the EU will always insist that ultimately they are the ones interpreting and enforcing EU law. And there's no way of solving that. And Sometimes people see this as a very unique aspect of the EU, but but actually, if we look historically, a federal authority has has always been contested in, in, in this way. But anyway, so so I look at sort of um this identity that the EU uh, wants to protect, and 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 as you rightly point out, I think that can be found in the Copenhagen criteria because if we want to understand what the union sees as its identity, we want to see what criteria it sets for new members to join. So the Mm -hmm. members that join have to be substantially similar to the states of the union, that's the idea. Um, And that of course evolves over time because during the Cold War, the states that can join are the states of the West, the states of the Western economic model. So they actually don't specify very many economic criteria um, because that's sort of actually assumed just as to to be in place already. So so those are more questions of like human rights. Um, but after the Cold War and when the post-communist states join, of course, they need to have a very specific economic model that fits the one of the Union. So the Copenhagen mm-hmm. criteria are, are very um, comprehensive in scope in terms of what they demand um, of the new member states. Um,
0: yeah, and, and you you make a very interesting point actually about um, the demands that the EU has placed on uh, on new members. You know, and you compare it to the Swiss and German Confederation yeah. and, that, and how restrictive they were in admitting new members. I didn't know that history actually, particularly yeah. the, the, the the story about the the Austrian Canton. Yeah. Um, so, do do you? Th- I mean, obviously, this is this is trying to. Correct things that have already happened. Twenty twenty hindsight, but do do you think that they should have that the European Union should have been more demanding on that side uh, before entry? So
1: before no, I mean, so the thing is, like, so I I think like the, the EU is, is is quite similar to the United States actually in terms of how it has expanded. So I I give this example of like state building in the United States that they sort of um, when they expand they want to make sure that the new states are governable, and I think the Copenhagen mm-hmm. criteria is very much about that. So it basically, I cite uh, James Scott seeing like a state. So it's basically saying you need to make sure that the regimes in place are visible to an outsider so that they can measure them and understand them and see whether they comply. Um, so this is what they do with the Copenhagen criteria. And I think it would be <laughs> it would have been difficult to be more demanding. They were like really quite demanding mm. already. But but the problem is that, of course, like um, criteria, accession criteria can only ensure that the states that join are similar at the point of accession. They can't ensure that they stay the same. So this yeah. is the second problem I discuss in, in chapter four of the book, which is a problem of constitutional change or constitutional amendments in the member states, because in contrast to a state that has sort of, um, sub state levels, um, in, in this case, these, these, the member states remain politically autonomous. And one of the most fundamental aspects of political autonomy is the idea that you can decide on the, on, on your own constitutional form. So you can decide to become someone else, change your constitution. And this, this is something that the, the federation, of course, has, has to govern. But, but it's difficult to do so because as long as the member states remain politically autonomous, they sort of have a claim to do this. Uh, but that can't really be tolerated by the union. But the point of the federation is exactly that the member states remain politically autonomous. So mm-hmm. there's actually no really good way of, of doing that. And and I do look at how federations have attempted to govern this. Um, so so I do look at um in the United States they had this federal guarantee clause where they basically said that the federal level guaranteed the constitutional form of republicanism at the level of the member states in the United States. And that of course is in, in one sense this is a way of protecting the member states and their constitutional identity. But on the other hand, it's also a way of freezing them in time and saying you cannot become someone else. Yeah. You have to be this way. Um of course <laughs> that changes over time like the meaning of republicanism in the united states changed greatly over time from being first sort of a criteria for like being anti monarchical anti democratic to being um anti slavery um and what i sort of see as sort of um the identity that the eu attempts to protect is this idea of constrained democracy or ordered yes. democracy um yeah
0: yeah that, that's and well that brings us to another big and related issue, which is this um, this problem you identify of, of duality. So the, 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 the two aspects of the federation pulling in, in, in opposite directions. Yeah. So it, on the one hand, you have, um, again, to quote you, you say the states come together in a new common union because they want to preserve their own political identity and autonomy. They come together in order to remain who they are. But then there is this, uh, at the very beginning of the treaty, is this commitment to have a closer union, which is creative in nature? So, on the one hand, you have this conservative uh, uh, identity to the federation, and then you have this, uh, th- as you put it, uh, um, this uh, desire to create the not yet there. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so those two things are pulling against each other, and and. Yes, could, could you?
1: Yeah, so this is what I identify as sort of the internal contradiction of the federation as a political form. So it's basically that it's constituted for two uh, two different purposes. On the one hand, the member states come together in the federation because they, for one reason or another, has found it difficult, if not impossible, to maintain themselves politically as independent states. So they come together basically to remain who they are. And that might be because they have like a military force from from the outside, or they need like you know a larger internal market. Um, it might also be because they are afraid of like internal constitutional forces that will overthrow the regime. There might be different reasons for this, but 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 they want to remain and protect themselves as sort of autonomous political entities. But they also choose to come together with a fellow member states in the new union and that will create this new political identity. I mean, the Federation is a political entity because it has borders, it has an identity, it has a sense of um community that the member states that come together has a bond, um, some kind of common destiny that they are different from everyone else. So um that would be expressed differently in different federations, but in in the EU, there's this idea of saying that only European states can accede to the EU. So you need like mm-hmm. there's no you know legal definition of what a European state is, so that's determined politically, right? Like who belongs to Europe as sort of like a community of values, who's the right kind of European state. So but, but these two different forces of calls pull the federation in different directions because on the one hand there's this conservative force because the Member States want to remain who they are. But on the other hand there's this really um, forward looking uh, force that will create something new, bring something into to being, which is yeah, in, in the EU is expressed in terms of the ever co- closer union of the peoples of Europe. And and that has this sort of um it's the foundations for a teleological Form of authority that gives a mandate to to expand and create something new. Um, so, so for this kind of political form, a federation to to come into existence, the the citizens of of the states that unite they have to have the quite pe- peculiar sentiment. I I, I dicey here, saying that um, <laughs> on the one hand they they cannot they cannot want unity because then they would create a new unitary state. But but they they can't want to be um, you know completely separate either, so because then they wouldn't come together at all. So they need to they need to want a union without unity um, for this to work. Um, but
0: does 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 it always does it always have to have a telos? Does, does does every federation always have to be growing together but not reaching unity? Is it possible to have stasis?
1: Um. I don't think so, no. I mean, so like the union is always like, I mean, so it, I'm not saying that it will always, it, it might sort of, the balance between the power of the sort of the union level and the member states might go up and down over time, I think. But um, if you look at sort of union authority, which I write about in, in chapter three, it's it's, my point is basically that you can't compare a federation to to a state because basically the foundations for for authorities is very different. So the union institutions will have a teleological foundations for their authority because they're they're not created as sort of a general government to like do all sorts of things. They are created for quite limited purposes that the member states come together in order to achieve. So that might be a common defense, the creation of a common military structure. It might be the creation of a single market, um, which often is the case, and definitely the case in the EU. So you can't really have stasis because you know you're you're always sort of like working on creating that, and that is the foundations of of the power that's bringing something into to being. Um, so it's not just creating sort of a government that can you know regulate I don't know morality and health and 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 sort of. Whatever they like, it's it's for specific purposes, but those those purposes are future oriented.
0: Mm. And you you make this point, and I mean, you were t- touching on it there, but you make this point that that uh, sovereignty is not a useful concept in understanding the the form of the federation. I mean, it's essential to understanding the form of the state, but not the federation. Yes. Could you explain that point?
1: Yeah. So basically, I mean. As soon as you bring in sovereignty to understanding the Federation, you will tend to um, ignore a significant part of the complexity of the Federation, because either you will, I mean, so sovereignty is an absolute concept. And that means that it can only reside if you sort of, if you want to sort of superimpose it on the Federation, either with the federal level or with the member states. And that means that you have to tell a story where you either sort of like ignore the member states or the union, um, which is just not very helpful in terms of understanding how they actually work. Um, Hmm. The point is that like claims to sovereignty can always be advanced on the one hand by the member states, but also on the other hand of the union. Um, And this um, this is what I tried to show, especially in the last chapter. Of the book about emergency politics. But um, I mean, so like, so there's a huge debate about this in, in, in EU law. Um, and I think the reason for that is that, you know, it's always been important in federations to, I mean, in terms of crisis, there will always be claims to sovereignty. But those, if they are successful, so those claims, it will tend to sort of destroy the federation, um, either in terms of leading to a civil war. Uh, which is has happened quite often but let me backtrack a little bit so like in in the literature this discussion is is often framed in terms of constitutional pluralism so this is a point that saying okay um claims to ultimate legal authority can be advanced in the eu either on behalf of the member states or the union and um within these different legal orders there's always sort of like uh a legitimate claim to authority, but there's no way of sort of like, there's no overarching legal order that can sort of solve this problem. Um, My point in the book is if we actually want to sort of like think about why sovereignty is, is fundamentally contested in the Federation in the EU, we have to think of a more political conception of sovereignty. And that means that if we want to see when sovereignty is contested, it's in these really deeply political moments, not like questions of legal hierarchy. So that would be moments of great crisis. Um, so I cite Carl Schmidt here, who is a very controversial figure yeah. in constitutional <laughs> theory. Um, but his point is basically saying like um, sovereign, sovereign is he who decides on the exception. Um, mm. So my point is basically in the last chapter of the book, when it comes to the exception in the EU in the US on crisis, it's actually quite difficult to see who decides. Often federal emergency politics will be what I called mixed emergency politics, where <laughs> it's not really clear who uh, acts as the guardian of the constitution, who acts as a quasi constitutional dictator, on or on behalf of 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 who they whom they are uh, they act like what constitution mm. they they want to save, so. Yeah, I hope that sort of illuminates a little bit. It's it's, it's think a what, long argument. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, so I, on, on the emergency rule uh, thing, I mean that was certainly true um, between well, really between twenty ten and and the uh, and the end of twenty fifteen. Um, but do do you think that there was a big element of learning by doing in that they they spent th- those five years. Um, Creating new agencies to deal with this kind of crisis, yeah. and and also working out, you know, the the sort of priority of who had competence and who didn't. Do, do I mean, I, I do suspect that if this happened again, oh, sorry, when this happens again, um, that they would, the the, the the legal order will be quite a lot clearer.
1: Yeah, I mean, you might be right about that, but but I think it actually proves my point. So saying like often these things are... So so this is why I, I go from like the debate of Hungary and Poland to the Eurozone crisis. So like the debate mm. about like why the EU cannot intervene in Poland and Hungary is often said, oh, like there's not a good enough legal framework. So you, the EU can't really do anything about it. And I really don't buy that because what you saw in the Eurozone crisis is that a whole new framework was just invented. Um, and that if it is deemed necessary, authority can always be exercised. There can always be a claim um, to go beyond the law in order to save the constitution. Mm. And that claim can be advanced both by the member states, but also by by the union. Um, And what is interesting about the federation is that in contrast to the state, there's always two underlying political subjects that can be appealed to. So on, on the one hand, there's all the sort of um, the citizens of the individual member states. So like French people, British people, Danish people. But there will also be the possibility of appealing to the people of the Union. Um, so in this case, the people of Europe. And that will be a potential huge source of authority. Um, mm. So my point is that in the Eurozone crisis, ultimately, um the European Central Bank uh, went beyond the law in an attempt to to save the union from collapse. Um, in a similar way to, and, and if you look at like how this has been legitimized, it's, it's quite similar to to how Lincoln um, authorized uh, the exceptional use of, of federal power in the Civil War. Mm. Um, so, so my point is not like to to sort of um, provide a normative argument for whether whether the member states or the union did something good or bad in any particular moment, but it's more to understand how can you actually generate authority in a federation and how is it generated in a qualitatively different way than than it would be in, in a state. So, I mean, there's several pieces written about this, about, oh, I mean, we can't really understand the EU based on the state of exception um, which is sort of a general theory of emergency politics. Um, but definitely there was some kind of emergency politics going on. And my point is basically the EU does not um, comply to the theory as a state of exception because it's not a state but a federation and it has a different kind of emergency politics, it, a different kind of structure, constitutional structure for how emergency politics is, is exercised.
0: Hmm. G- yes, uh, uh, that's uh, that's a very good point. And, and do you think it's to do... To... The the fact that they acted so quickly and they essentially determined a on the hoof legal basis for what they did was that to do do you think with with essentially the immediate two things the immediacy of the problem and how obvious it was that this was a core competence of European institutions because they had created a monetary union whereas in say in the case of Hungary and Poland today. It's seen as a problem, but it's not. It's never seen as an absolutely acute problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not completely sure what I think about this. I mean, it it does. What worries me is that this comparison might suggest that uh, the EU cares a great deal more about its what we could call its economic constitution, its economic order, than it does about. <laughs> the more political aspects of the project, right? Um, So somehow it's seen as less problematic what is going on in Poland and Hungary, where the judiciary is being completely undermined than uh, what happened in in the Eurozone crisis. Um, why, Why they acted in the way they did? I mean, I think the European Central Bank sort of emerged in the crisis Within the European institutions, as the only actor that somehow could could exercise power, and therefore they did. Um, whether that was good or bad, that's that's another question.
0: Yeah, you you um you make a point. I think at the end of the book that um, scholarship around the federation is or uh, uh, research research, uh, research around the federation is uh, uh, there's not enough of it. Essentially, yeah. it's it's. Uh, why do you think that is? Given that you know we have this huge uh, federation that's been with us. Well, there are two t- gigantic examples of it in the world, but this this new one, uh, newish one that's close to us. Why is it something that is? Do you think has become undervalued?
1: Well, I think it has to do with sort of the dominance of the theory of the state, both in law and political science and in international relations. It is something that is changing now. There's uh, a lot of work done on, on empire now, which is amazing and, and interesting. I think the, the debates about the federation has been very um, much influenced by the debates that took place, especially in Germany in, in the latter part of the 19th century where they basically tried to make what they had had, like they had a theory of the federation before, but they wanted to make it sort of um, conform with a theory of the state. And therefore they invented first the theory of the federal state, which didn't exist before. And then um, they wanted to contrast that with uh, this idea of like the confederation. So they, they form it. The two categories are Staatenbund and Bundesstaat. And they were seen as very problematic in the beginning because they, you know, it's basically like attaching the concept of the state to like the federation, either like a state federation or a federation mm-hmm. of states. Um, um, and I think that has like sadly influenced how we have thought about federations for a very long time. Um, I hope I hope that will change a bit. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, I'm not the only one working on, on this. So I do cite mm-hmm. person like Oliver Bow was written A wonderful book about the theory of the Federation and Christoph Schoenberger. Sadly, most of their work is not translated into English, so that might also be a reason why it's it's not studied very much in in Anglo American academia.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, finally, as with uh, every guest, I have asked you for a recommendation on a book or books. What have you chosen?
1: Yeah, so I thought I would um, recommend a book on American history, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is Gary Gerstel's, uh, Liberty and coercion, the paradox of American government, mm-hmm. which is really a wonderful book about, uh, yeah, sort of the relationship between the federal level and the state level throughout American history. And he sort of, he makes a similar point to me that, um, because my, most scholarship has been centered on this idea of the American state as sort of like the federal level, mm-hmm. um, the extraordinary power wielded for for the most of the history of the American Republic has, of, by by the state level, by like the individual states, that has basically been ignored. So so that's a very good introduction to that. I also want to recommend um my two-year-old son's favorite book, uh, which is okay. called Cars, Train, Ships, and Planes: A Visual Encyclopedia <laughs> to Every Vehicle, which is just the best book if uh for for anyone who has a a toddler who likes vehicles which I think most of us tend to do Um, (laughs) yeah
0: okay well good good combination Um, thank you today I've been talking to Sina Larson about the constitutional theory of the federation and the European Union published this month by Oxford University Press Sina thank you for joining the podcast
1: thank you so much it's been a pleasure